Warriors podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode in particular, we'll be taking a close look at Weird War Tales number 40. Before we get into the issue at hand, however, Rich has a little retroactive history for you. Out now for 25 bucks. A collection of Creature Commando stories from Weird War Tales number 93, 97, 100, 102, 105, 108 through 112, 114 through 119, 121, and 124. I assume that's probably all of them. Get it now so you can follow along in a decade when we get to them. I saw it on J.M. Demetize. I don't know how you say that, sorry. Facebook post and commented on his page about having Pat Broderick sign issue 93 and got a thumbs up emoji from him. And two creator updates. Rich Buckler's work appeared in six issues of WWT, and he was memorialized on the Facebook page last year when the date of his death came around. At the time, his Fidograph page did not have a photo of his marker at the Gate of Heaven Cemetery in Hawthorne, New York, and I put out a request. It has since been fulfilled, photo on the album. It's a neat marker, black stone with his likeness on it, with a hand holding a pen inking it coming in from the side. Go check it out. Mike Sikowski's Find a Grave page likewise had no remembrances or photos. Someone beat me to the headstone request. But I added a photo of the artist. Moving on to the Intel report. American Vampire, Volume 3. It's a collection by DC Vertigo released in 2012. The story arcs include American Vampire issues 12 through 18, script by Scott Snyder and art by Raphael Albuquerque, and American Vampire Survival of the Fittest issues 1 through 5, script by Scott Snyder and art by Sean Murphy. It's the 1940s and our world is at war. From Imperial Japan to Nazi Germany, rivers of blood have been spilled. That will be nothing compared to the ocean of horror the Axis powers will unleash if they succeed in harnessing the ultimate weapon, vampires. And now, I have a quick little retroactive intel report I want to punt over at our co-host here. Uh, Max has said in the past that uh, there's a couple of books that, that uh, he's wanted to borrow off of me. And last time we crossed paths, I enabled him. <laughs> I enabled him a lot. <laughs> Um, he got Rover Red Charlie and Royals Masters of War. So, Meng, what you think? Well, I haven't gotten to Masters of War yet, but I read Rover Red Charlie, and that's one of my favorite things I've read in a long, long time. I mean, I had a suspicion. That's why I put it on the top of the pile. It's animals and a post-apocalypse story. So um, it's got like a lot of my numbers already dialed right in perfectly, and it didn't disappoint. It, it was so much fun. And, and it went away. It's There's parts of the story that are quite gruesome, as you might suspect. But just everything was was done perfectly for me. I liked the way they decided to write the dogs talking to each other. You know, because obviously it's not just going to be a bunch of bark, 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 sniff, sniff, fart, whatever going on. Although that does happen, all of it <laughs> and more. 
but there there was a good way for them to bring you in as as someone listening to these animals communicate trying to survive in a world after humanity has gone insane and I, I highly recommend it. I, I hope one day that we take a look at it on the show because I'd like to dive back into it again. And I'm looking forward to the rest of the giant stack of comics that you gifted me with last time we hooked up. But Red Rover Charlie, high marks from me. Have you, uh, on a related side note, did you ever go back and reread any of the, uh, well, no, not reread, but read um, any of the War is Hell books? Because I know that was kind of on your radar also, the, uh, the our first special mission. Did you ever go and read, catch any of those? I have not. <laughs> Big shock. <laughs> but I figured not to ask because I hadn't given him those. <laughs> there, well, yeah. So, yeah, yeah we'll see. Uh, Next time. I, I'd say I'll get to it, but you know, uh, squirrel. <laughs> Shiny object. <laughs> I don't, uh, for, for people at home or in the car or the bathroom or wherever you happen to be right now, first of all, welcome. Second of all, I don't just say I have ADHD and the attention span of a mayfly. It's actually true, okay? So, <laughs> so you know, I'll, I'll get to stuff either when I get to it or when Rich goes, hey, what the heck? Well, it's like what I said in last time's teaser, too. It's just like, you know, when I was like, 40, Max, 40. <laughs> I'm like, it's just like, you wouldn't have gotten issue four without me, you know, you know, using the old, you know, whipping, you know, you know, shocker stick or something. <laughs> I mean, I didn't think I would make it to 40, period. So. <laughs> no lies detected. <laughs> so, anyway, with that lovely intel report and shaming session out of the way we'll take a break for um me to quit the podcast and we'll play a promo for another show to listen to now that this one's over okay and when rich gets back he can do whatever the heck he wants or you know take a look at the issue or something i don't know because i'm done in 1975 jaws was released it is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? And okay, fine, I'm back. What the heck else was I going to do? So, 
podcast promo break over. We're going to let good old Rich hit you guys with the cover detail for Weird War Tales number 40. First time since issue 19. We have a cover artist not named Joe Kubert or Louise Dominguez. Ernie Chan's on the job for 25 cents. Along the cover, along the top of the cover, we have a Weird Wars Tales banner with the Lion of DC Superstars logo in the middle of it. There are the heads of a GI, a German, and a skeletal GI spaced along the banner. The main title is in blue on a purple sky. Four orange-colored GIs emerge from an orange dust cloud facing the viewer. One looks exhausted. In full color in the cover's foreground with a black tree as a backdrop, two skeletal GIs fire a water-cooled machine gun towards the viewer as a third fires his rifle. One of the background GIs exclaims, Hey, stop firing! The war's over! Cover date, August 1975. Date of release, May 20th, 1975. No killjoy! Max, stick it away! Okay, so comments and commendations on this cover. I gotta say, I don't think this is Ernie Chan's best work. Overall, uh, it looks dashed out to me. The casings or whatever, shut up, flying out of the gun, throw off the image's balance for me. And while the cover as a whole does catch the eye, it doesn't really hold you for much longer than that. The logo does look nice in the chosen blue tones against the misty background, but... The addition of the two random soldier heads that you mentioned into the banner up top just looked like they wandered in there by accident. I gave it a C minus, but not that we're going to start grading stuff or anything silly like that. I think we were thinking about doing that in the, you know, feeling out the show days. We're like, yeah, that sounds like work. (laughs) (laughs) Dust? Sunset? Smoke? I don't know. But I like the purple, orange, yellow fade of the background colors and the way the GIs are both emerging from it and blending in with it. The blue coloring of both the title and the machine gun in the foreground provides a nice balance. The overall foreground scene is eye-catching also, but Chan's skulls don't look like they're quite finished. The teeth of the gunner look melded together. And the brass being ejected from the machine gun doesn't look right either. It's too evenly spaced, all still facing the same direction, even feet away from the gun, like it's still in a belt. I'm struggling to decide if, overall, if I like this cover or not. Despite the caption saying that the war is over, the cover also gives me an early war vibe. The GIs appear to be carrying O3 Springfields, and that big water-cooled machine gun doesn't hurt either. All right, so cover out of the way. We're going to dive into the first full-length story inside this issue. And because we have a special guest at the top of the synopsis, we're going to have Rich take this one away. Back from the Dead. Six pages. Script by Jack Olick. Art by Fred Carrillo. The skeletal GI from the cover is the narrator, but I don't care. Night. A bleak, shattered castle lurking death. Sounds like the perfect setting for a ghost story, doesn't it? And it was. Except that Pete Akers was a tough GI who didn't believe that anyone ever came back from the dead. Pete Akers and Joe Crane are buddies enjoying some hot chow behind the lines and watching a movie about ghosts. Akers thinks the movie is dumb, but it gives Crane the chills. As Akers begins to rib Kane, they're startled by the sound of Kraut burp guns. As they get to their feet, a German tank surrounded by infantry crests a nearby hill and opens fire on the movie watchers, who scatter. 
Hopelessly outnumbered, the two Americans flee into the woods, leaving the sound of combat behind them. Lost and alone, they don't know the Battle of the Bulge has just begun. They find several dead GIs lying in the snow outside a building, and Crane shivers. I don't like this place. It's got a, a feeling about it, like, like it was haunted. Akers dismisses it. You and your spooks, don't be a sap. Maybe you like freezing, but I don't. They decide to clear the building. If it was clean, they'd stay. Moments after Crane goes into the cellar, Akers hears firing. Running downstairs, he finds Crane on his knees with three Germans standing above him and mows them down. One of the Germans drops his MP40. It goes off when it strikes the floor, sending a bullet into Akers, who cries out and falls. No one knows how long the two Americans lay there before coming to their senses. Neither one is hurt too badly, but Crane reminds Akers that they shouldn't have gone inside the building. This place is haunted. I don't know how I know, but I know. Again, Akers disregards Crane's worries, but in the distance, they hear the sound of incoming German 75s. As the shells explode around the building, the two GIs run for their lives. Make tracks before we join those poor guys in the snow, and the ground erupts directly in front of them and sends the Americans flying. Incredibly, neither one is injured, and they get up and continue their flight through the shells and snow. Eventually, a building comes into sight, and Crane is horrified to recognize it as the same one they'd fled earlier. They'd been running in a circle. Three GIs are walking inside, and Akers runs to catch up. Again, Crane protests. I can't go back to that place. I tell you it's haunted. Maybe, maybe what we're seeing are the ghosts of the dead GIs we found. Again, Akers shuns Crane's concern. Ghosts, my eye. When you're dead, you're dead. They're probably checking it out just like we did. And five of us will have a better chance than two. The other GIs don't hear Akers as he chases after them. Chase insists they're ghosts, which is why they don't hear Akers but follows anyway. Inside, the two GIs go into the cellar and meet the other three coming out. Akers offers his hands to them in greeting, but they walk on by, ignoring his questions. It's no use, Pete, Chase says. You better come here and take a look. When Akers looks, he gasps as Chase continues. I was right, this place was haunted, but I was mistaken when I thought it was haunted by those GIs. I guess we both know why that artillery burst couldn't hurt us, don't we? Akers and Chase looked down at their own bodies lying on the floor of the cellar. Akers had been wrong to not believe in ghosts. Dead wrong. No Killjoy. Move on to the CNC. This was a bit of a throwback to Weird War Tales 20, where that craven coward that had gotten himself and everyone else in the squad killed because he was looking out for number one, didn't know that he was, in fact, already dead. Yet another damn battle of the bullshite! <laughs> Carrillo is new to these pages, and I have to say, welcome. There's a lot going on here that I can get behind. Page two, panel three, of the Americans running from the German assault, some of them struck by fire. Page three, panel one, of Acres of Chase looking down at the U.S. dead, partially covered in snow. Page four, panel five, of the near miss blowing the two GIs through the air. Yellow blast, black smoke, and the GIs colored red. Sweetness. Page five, panel six. Wisping snow around the three GIs entering the building do make them look a bit ghostly and eerie. Kind of see what Chase was getting at there. And now the good news. While we won't be seeing him again for a while, issue 58, Krilla will appear in practically every issue of the last dozen or so weird war tales going down the stretch to the end of the run. Yay! All right, first I gotta say, this isn't in the script, but it just hit me. We just had a World War II story in this comic book. And Rich had no killjoy. 
I mean, is that like a first? <laughs> no Art Killjoy, no nothing. Mark that down, people. Well, I did welcome Krillo, did I not? <laughs> welcome, because I couldn't find anything wrong. <laughs> I mean, that's fantastic. So as for my CNC on this story, back from the dead and back to the bulge. I liked this story, even if it was just barely a twist on a staple Weird War Tales plot at this point. The characterizations built into the writing helped a lot, as did the art and page layouts laid down by Carrillo. Yes, spoiler alert, I like him too. The opening splash panel is a textbook-worthy example of how to open a comic book story in more ways than one. and drops us in media res to a future point of action, which is a favorite trope of mine in comics, and it draws us through the action with Aker's forward motion the stream of fire from the rifle and terminating eh, in the excellently drawn body language of the Nazis that are getting hosed down. This is great stuff. On the subject of layouts, check out page two, panel three. It's a great use of a mostly borderless panel and a well-chosen panel break with a foot going out of the panel to enhance the action and keep the eyes moving. Then go to page five, panel two, another great example with an interestingly shaped and slightly panel-broken image, providing variety and structure to what might otherwise have felt like a slightly cramped page. The drawing, in general, is fantastic throughout this story. But, you know, because it's me, I got to find some nitpick. I was thrown a little bit by these zombie-faced soldiers on page six, panel five. It's like, do the dead see the living as the dead... Whatever they're going for there, it didn't quite work for me. However, with only that, and okay, the lazily copy-pasted helmeted host popping up throughout the entire story and on the cover, adding a tiny bit of drag, this was still a super fun and enjoyable opening story in my hallowed opinion. So, good start. Let's see if we can ruin it by uh, jumping to the next little story. Because, you know, I'll take the short one, Rich. <laughs> it's the day after Doomsday. Oh, yes. It's back. It's two pages long this time, as it usually is. Script is by Len Wein. Pencils by Howard Chaikin. And inks by Bill Drought. Synopsis for this little ditty goes as follows. The last man on Earth had walked through the unchanging rubble for days. Sometimes he would find a food can which he mused meant the fates weren't done having fun with him yet. They were just trying to keep him alive. Living wouldn't be so bad if not for all the memories of how things used to be. Suddenly, he's amazed to come across a miracle, a flawless plate glass window in a storefront. It had somehow survived the Holocaust. He sat on the sidewalk in amazement. The things that great glass eye must have seen. People rushing by, the pulse beat of the city. But they're part of the past now. What a strange monument to an entire way of life. He got to his feet and heaved a brick through the window. Guess I haven't got the time for those memories anymore, he muttered as he walked down the ruptured street to the dying sound of falling glass fading into silence behind him. So, no real killjoy there. I mean... We're pretty close to the end of the world, so we'll let you know. But 
We'll move on to CNC, and I'll, I'll just keep on driving here and say that the art and writing on display throughout these two pages is pretty good. In fact, my only beef with this installment of the usually dreaded Day After Doomsday feature is that it ended too soon. I mean, we're never going to see this guy again. So the emotional turning point he goes through by the finish is just going to be a dead end. I've gotten the firm impression that Day After Doomsday is generally going to be an all or nothing feature in these pages. This is a thumbs up story. The, the first thing that came to mind was that scene at the end of Shrek when Dragon punches out that last pane of stained glass in the church. You could understand how it must have been hypnotizing to the last man on earth. His tethered appearance screams 1970s too. Long blonde hair, bandana, tall boots. Best panel is the action panel, page two, panel four, where he throws the brick through the window towards the viewer. And I guess I'm up anyway, so I guess I'm just going to keep my lips flapping. Next story, The Warrior Breed. Four pages. Script by Jack Olek. Art by Buddy Gurnail. It takes a very special kind of human being to be the hero in battle. But in his visions, Robert Shirtliff saw himself as such a hero. And his visions came true, even though few soldiers in history have been less suited to belong to. The Warrior Bree. In the dark days of the winter of 1774, Robert Shirtliff pleads with a lieutenant to join the American army. He acknowledges his small stature, but he'd had a vision, and in his vision he had fought like a demon. All he wants is a chance. The lieutenant isn't moved, but a passing higher-ranking officer comments that even the smallest man can fire a musket, and God knows they have few enough of them. Enlist him! And so on that day, Shirtliff became a trooper of the 4th Massachusetts Regiment. His baptism of fire comes only days later when the British ambush an American patrol. Without cover to shield behind, the Americans instead charge their attackers. Shirtliff is in the thick of the fighting, swinging his musket by the barrel. As the British retreat, Shirtliff is wounded in the arm by a musket ball. But no one knew because he sought no medical aid. A few weeks later, the British are discovered in a nearby farmhouse and the Americans attack. Shirtliff's valor inspires the victory as the British are defeated, but again he is wounded, bayoneted from behind. He insists to the concerned lieutenant that it is only a scratch, nothing to be concerned about. But as time passes, the two wounds begin to take their toll. Feverish, he collapses during a march in a snowstorm. Taken to an aid station, the doctor tells the lieutenant that though Shirtliff will live, his soldiering days are over and he will have to be discharged. The lieutenant is shocked. He's the best man I have. I even put him in for a decoration. If he's going to recover, then why? Don't ask me to explain it, the doctor interrupts. It will take a higher authority than you or me to decide this matter. There's just no other way. Weeks later, the men of the 4th Massachusetts gather to see Shirtlift be decorated. Shocked, they stand at attention to honor one of their own and witness part of what makes America great. For Robert Shirtlift was really Deborah Sampson, a woman who had seen her duty and done it enlisted forever in the ranks of the warrior breed. And in case you didn't see this coming, Killjoy History Minute. Sweet Jesus. This is such a great, true story. And Olick screws it up on the splash page by placing the action in the dark days of 1774. The shot heard round the world, Lexington and Concord, 
didn't occur until 1775. Sorry, Jack, but that's a stunning error. I know the U.S. is starting to get all excited about the bicentennial. And you probably wanted to get some 200th anniversary action in here, but you shouldn't have. Deborah Sampson enlisted in the Light Infantry Company of the 4th Massachusetts in May of 1782 as Robert Shirtliff. Contrary to the story, she was actually slightly taller, five foot seven, than the average height of soldiers from Massachusetts. Light infantry companies were elite troops, especially picked because they were taller and stronger than average. Their job was to provide rapid flank coverage for advancing regiments, as well as rear guard and forward reconnaissance duties for units on the move. Because she joined an elite unit, Samson's disguise was more likely to succeed, since no one was likely to look for a woman among soldiers who were specially chosen for their above average size and superior physical ability. Samson fought in several skirmishes. In June of 1782, she and two sergeants led about 30 infantrymen on an expedition that ended in a confrontation with Tories, often one-on-one. She also led a raid on a Tory hole, which resulted in the capture of 15 men. It is believed that the truth of Samson's sex survived several close calls throughout her service, though no records of her being discovered exist prior to her actual discovery. During her first battle on July 3, 1782, outside Terrytown, New York, she was shot twice in her thigh by a musket and sustained a cut on her forearm from a sword about two months after her enlistment, not mere days as portrayed in the story, and she was wounded in the leg, not the arm. She begged her fellow soldiers not to take her to a doctor out of fear her sex would be discovered, but a soldier put her on his horse and took her to the hospital. A doctor treated her head wound, but she left the hospital before he could attend to her leg. She removed one of the balls herself with a penknife and sewing needle, but the other was too deep for her to reach. She carried it in her leg for the rest of her life, and her leg never fully healed. On April 1st, 1783, she was reassigned to new duties and spent seven months serving as a waiter to General John Patterson. On June 24th, the President of Congress ordered George Washington to send a contingent of soldiers under Patterson to Philadelphia and help quell a rebellion of American soldiers who were protesting delays in receiving their pay and discharges. During the summer of 1783, Samson became ill in Philadelphia and was cared for by Dr. Barnabas Binney. After Samson fell unconscious to fever, Dr. Biddy removed her clothes to treat her and discovered the cloth she had used to bind her breasts. Without revealing his discovery to army authorities, he took her to his house where his wife, daughters, and a female nurse cared for her. Going back to the story, this was in the summer, not the winter, so dramatically portrayed on page three. In September 1783, following the signing of the Treaty of Paris, November 3rd was set as the date for soldiers to muster out. When Dr. Biddy asked Samson to deliver a note to General Patterson, she correctly assumed that it would reveal her sex. In other cases, women who pretended to be men to serve in the army were reprimanded. And Patterson gave her a discharge, a note with some words of advice, and enough money to travel home. She was honorably discharged at West Point, New York, by General Henry Knox on October 25, 1783, after a year and a half of service. She married after the war and received a pension for her wartime service. Samson died of yellow fever on April 29, 1827, at the age of 66. Comments and commendations. You can almost hear the trumpets on page four, panel six, where the revealed Samson proudly stands with a medal on her chest, the flag flying overhead while the skeletal narrator dressed in period garb wraps the story. But, Killjoy, the government wasn't awarding medals back then, especially for enlisted personnel. The purple heart-shaped cloth patch was awarded for merit to only three soldiers by Washington himself at the end of the war, now comparable to the Medal of Honor. This was the forerunner to the Purple Heart Decoration, which is now only awarded 
for wounds inflicted by the enemy. Grenell's art is pretty good. The combat scenes are solid. Page two, panel one. I like how Shirtliff is stepping on a redcoat's face as he is swinging his musket by the barrel. Page three, panel one reminds me of those Revolutionary War full-page toy ads a bit. This is obviously one of those stories where I stomp all over the creators because they still weren't blessed with the internet back in the day. But even with all the killjoys, this is still a real solid story. That said, I'm not forgiving him for the 1774 whiff, but it's a nice callback for us for the 97 Weird War Tale story, The Elopement, where Carol became Carl and ended up in Andersonville. And the funny thing is, my wife is in the Daughters of the American Revolution, and I had her read this story, getting a photo of her reading a comic book for the album was an opportunity lost. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, you don't only want to push things so far, man. <laughs> but for my part, first of all, I didn't know this was a true story. And as usual, when Rich digs into the true stories, they are so much cooler than even the comic book version we got. So that's amazing. I also told my wife all about this figure in history, and she looked her up. So that was cool. So we both got our wives to do something related to the show. I mean, this is probably the only time it's going to happen. So save that. Just put a pin in it right there. For my part, actually commenting on the story contents here, right away, I felt like someone was trying to butter me up with this with this story because, dang, is that ever a great opening logo host splash panel. Woo! Two hosts, the skeletal soldier and a skull with a dangling eyeball resting on a pile of bones. Buddy Gurnail, you are an aptly named individual in my book because you're my buddy. I won't belabor the point here since Rich already hit us with that awesome history lesson, but let's just say... I liked everything about this story. For my own customized comic book curator commentary, I want to call out that Gurndale's work on page three, which Rich has kind of mentioned already, has a very Steve Ditko-esque quality to it, especially in the first three panels. Or Gurndale, goddammit. That is not a complaint. I've got to mention also the appearance of the phrase Make America Great on page four, panel five, and the final two panels of this story are just perfectly done. I give this one super high marks even before hearing Rich's History Minute. So, I mean, this this issue is really a three in a row that I'm digging. So, I, I don't know. Will we make it all the way through? Will this be a no-flat tire issue? Let's find out, because I'm going to do the last full-length story in this book, and I'll tell you what it is. I'll tell you how long it is and who created it. And then our buddy Rod will kick us off, and then I'll take over. The final story in this issue is called The Soldier from Space. It's six pages long. Script is by George Cashdan. Art is by Rick Estrada. And the synopsis for this final tale starts off read by Rod. It goes a little something like this. Many are the ploys that warriors have conceived to bring swift carnage to the enemy, which is one reason why, in a single spine-shattering moment, World War II nearly became America's ultimate massacre at the hands of the soldier from space. Somewhere over the ETO, German anti-aircraft guns returned fire as Allied bombs blast Nazi armor. Into this Holocaust, drifts a weird alien vessel. Its pilot can't believe his eyes. The sustenance on this world is unlimited, provided these savages don't wipe out. The pilot's thoughts are interrupted when his craft is hit by German fire and goes out of control. The next morning, 
Colonel Heinz Holst men discover the crash site of the strange craft. There appeared to be a lab of some sort on board with large glass tanks. The pilot is unconscious on the ground beside the ship. As he begins to stir, Colonel Holst, fearing the pilot could be dangerous, orders his men to kill him. Two soldiers empty their weapons into the pilot, who is just laying on the ground, I gotta mention at this point. The pilot proceeds to sit up anyway. Where am I? Who, who are you people? I, I don't even know my name. Ach, du lieber, he has amnesia. This gives Colonel Holst a brilliant idea. I am Colonel Heinz Holst of the Imperial German Army. Do you not recall that you were dispatched to aid us in repelling the Americanish? Is it Americanish? Is that good? The Americanish conqueror? I seem to remember that I was sent on some mission, the pilot admits. But perhaps uh, your craft, with weapons that only you know how to operate, will jog your memory. An excellent suggestion, Colonel. The pilot returns to the cockpit and spends several minutes staring at the console, trying to remember how it all worked. One switch accidentally triggered the weapon system, which stunned the field of Germans surrounding the ship. Uh, according to the orders of our Fuhrer, you have many such powerful weapons, Holst says as he picks himself off the ground. Ready yourself for battle tonight! The pilot salutes. I'll be... Ready as soon as my damaged craft is repaired. That night, American artillery began to hammer the German concentration. Colonel Holst screams at the pilot to take off. But before he can, shrapnel from a nearby shell burst glances off the pilot's head, stunning him. His memory returns. What am I doing here? I'm supposed to be bringing back food. Orders from your Fuhrer indeed. You should be ashamed of yourself, Colonel. Realizing the pilot was not going to help them anymore, Holst orders his tanks to open fire on the ship as it takes off. The ship is buffeted by shells as the pilot grimaces. These Germans are making my task much too difficult. I must get them out of the way. He makes an attack run on the Germans, completely destroying them with the same weapons that he would have used on the Americans. Afterward, the pilot wanders through the stench and decay. His orders had been to not kill any living beings, but what choice did he have? He would have collapsed from starvation otherwise. He hoped none of his people were having hunger pangs. Taking off, he contacted his home base. This is Agent Zarg. Good news. I came upon a world of warlike people who seem to delight in killing one another. <laughs> Good news. They will supply us with an endless source of the food we need for survival. Human blood! Provided, of course, they don't completely wipe themselves out. The glass tanks in the lab behind him are full of just that human blood. The end. I think somehow in a story with an alien blood thief, Rich found a way to include some killjoy in the proceedings. <laughs> it was on page one, panel one, somewhere over the ETO where German anti-aircraft ferreted out fighter bombers raining death. To my inexperienced eye, a fighter bomber is usually just that. A fighter carrying bombs that makes a low-level, high-speed pass over enemy positions as they engage the targets. The aircraft portrayed here appear to be twin-engine bombers dropping their payloads on a standard attack run. Drop the word fighter, George. Too bad, because I like that panel otherwise. Page 2, panels 3 and 5. The alien is not wearing his helmet. Oh, wait! Yes, he is. Page 3, panel 2. 
Maybe Colonel Heitens Holtz had at one time belonged to the Imperial German Army, but not during World War II. The Imperial German Army existed from the country's creation in 1871 until dissolved in 1919 following its First World War defeat. It was replaced by the Reichswehr in the days of the Weimar Republic until 1935, when it was replaced by the Wehrmacht, which, as we all know, was disbanded in 1945. Moving straight on into the CNC. Remember the Conquerors from Weird War Tales 16? Instead of exporting vampires into outer space, this time it's like Grubhub food pickup. We saw Estrada for the first time in that visiting the next five episode in Blitzkrieg 1, but this is the first time we see him in these pages. And it sucks. The alien is wearing those goggle-type shades like a hip cat and has wild white hair, page 6, panel 5. The sound effects coming from the ship are comical, page 5, panel 5. Crack, crack, fast, boom, boom, boom. And the effects of the ship's weapons on the Germans in page 6, panel 1 look like an LSD fever dream. The alien's pupils ricocheting in his eyes on page 5, panel 1 as he snaps out of it. Is a nice touch, though. Truthfully, even without the lousy art, this would still probably be the dog of the issue for me. You say that all like it's a bad thing. So for once, I get to be Susie's sunshine to Rich's negative Nancy. I had a blast with this story, and I loved the art in particular. I felt that Estrada really shined here, leaning on some of his Alex Tothisms, but also not holding back with the idiosyncrasies of his own personal style. Sure, the host intro panel is eh, but that splash panel, woo, you are right in the thick of it. Great use of color, too. As for Tothisms, as I mentioned, just turn the page and look at panels three to four. The bolder outline for the soldier's face in the foreground has some of that pop that Toth likes to give things at times. And at panel four, the use of silhouettes harsh colors, and the bold crack, crack attack sound effects are a dead giveaway as to one of Estrada's likely artistic influences. Sure, as Rich mentioned, panel three shows the alien pilot with his helmet off, and then it's back out in the next panel. But hey, page three is a favorite of mine too. And in panel one, there's some nice silhouette work. Panel two has some, as Rich mentioned too, but I liked it, some wild coloring and line work on the faces that keep things interesting for me. And panel five is just psychedelic, man. I mean, I think it works for me. I, I like the 70s look to this story and leaning into like the more psychedelic aspects. I mean, seriously, put that panel under a black light just to be sure. Page four is no slouch either with a return in panel two of that wild, shiny-looking coloring and line work. It wouldn't suit the entire story, but as a highlight technique for the occasional panel, I like it. And a great example in panel five of the Toth-like pop-out emphasis used on the soldier's face in the foreground. And of course, panel one on page six, which which didn't like, for me, is just Nazi deathedelic. I liked it. As for the story itself, I also really dug it. In fact, the whole thing gave me kind of a goofy Lee Ditko Kirby Marvel monster story vibe, just created in the 70s instead of the previous decade. Me likey, I gotta say, this one just hit me the right way, but especially the art, I, I found this to be really unique and cool. So the issue wraps up, and for me, it was a no flat tire issue. I made it through all the stories without really disliking one of them. So we'll see how it goes 
as we move on to the letters page at the APO Weird War Tales section. I think we had similar opinions on Estrada's art in in uh, the visiting the next five uh, issues. So I think Estrada's art is just going to be one of these things that you and I are just going to be traditionally disagreeing. <laughs> but hey, that's what we're here for, right? We can't agree on everything. Anyway, my letter, Mark Schmieder from Concord, Massachusetts. I think we've had him on before. His missive is as follows. Dear Joe, I urge you once again to make Weird War bi-monthly. The Invaders was a totally new variation on an old theme and as such deserves to be called original. But even that didn't save it from disgrace because of Oleg's writing, specifically the dialogue in the last two panels of the story. How many times have I seen that you fool routine used? And yet, I can't really blame the story because it would have been excellent if written by someone else. The second story was just plain dumb, but what's the point of the closing dialogue? At least the art was excellent. I won't bother mentioning the day after Doomsday. Touche. Finally, we come to the one good story in this issue, To Hell and Back. Naturally, the art was excellent, but surprisingly, the script was too. Or maybe not so surprisingly, since it seems that World War I plots always inspire a writer to do his very best, which inspires the artist in turn. In closing, I must congratulate you on replacing Dominguez with Cubert on Weird War Tales covers. Mark Schmieder, Concord, Massachusetts. The reply was, Cubert hasn't replaced Dominguez. He's just rotating with him to allow the LD signature to pop up on our newly increased line of mystery mags. This guy pooped on John Lemon's art a couple issues ago. <gasps> but this time I'm generally less in, con in, in conflict with them. You know, the invaders was he, <laughs> but that World War I story was pretty cool. All right. So my chosen letter kicks off the letter column and it starts out with, it starts out like this. Dear Joe, weird war number 35 depressed me. I've been following this mag since the sixth issue. And this issue doesn't measure up to the preceding ones at all. The only good story was the first one. I really liked the art by Ocampo. The story was good, too. The conflict between Curly and his father was interesting, and the final twist was well done. I disagree. Anyway, back to the, uh, the actual letter. It's too bad I can't say the same things about the other stories. Night of the Blood Feast was really bad. The art looked as if it had been done in a couple of minutes, and the story was dull and very predictable. These day after doomsday stories used to be good. When? When before that one did they used to be good? But now they just take up space. Despite a valiant effort by Alfredo Alcala to save the story, the trite thing didn't interest me in the least. To Hell and Back was another installment of the age-old theme of the hero doing his heroic deeds while dead. And was boring. Sorry to be so negative, I don't think he's sorry, but I've seen you produce better material and I know you can do it again. And this came from Ken Meyer Jr. at Hill Air Force Base, Utah. So someone in the Air Force didn't like uh, To Hell and Back. I'll just leave that at that. And Joe's response to Ken goes a little something like this. Says our next correspondent agrees with your overall opinion, but it's a surprisingly different choice for the only good story in the issue, which just goes to show that our mixed bag appeals to different people in different ways. And then I got to, I, I probably should look at what the next guy said his favorite story was. Oh, you, that's your letter. 
Okay, so that next letter was was riches. I did that by accident. I didn't even realize when I picked my letter. I just like the fact that this one started off saying that a comic book depressed him, and then he wrote in about it. I just thought, like, that's a good way to start it off. <laughs> but the next correspondent that Joe refers to is Mark Schmieder. So I picked warring letters almost by instinct. So there you go. With <laughs> See, it, it's funny that, you know, you're reading this because the episode that just dropped was the full-length battle tale about, you know, Don Q and everything. And, you know, as you said, just like sometimes it's the bad issues that just evoke such this overwhelming sense to attack <laughs> and write in and just bench your spleen. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, sometimes the bad issues are bad or the bad stories or whatever are bad in a way where I become connected to them, like haunted by them, like the Monsieur Gravediggers that are out there. Like, I, I don't like it, but I also can't stop thinking about it. So they have a certain appeal. So <laughs> the Weird War Tales APO section out of the way, we're going to move on to a, what I think is going to be a pretty fun part of this episode, our spotlighted ads. Alabe Play Lab Kits. Look at what you can make with an Alabe Play Lab Kit. Eyes will pop as friends gasp. Own something special. Three-string electric, quote, quote, guitar. Camera, radio, exciting fun. Best of all, you make it yourself. Friends will be amazed. Think of the admiring glances. Admiring glances? Kit contains everything you need. Be the first on your block to get it. Other Alabe Play Lab Kits. Adjustable periscope. Phenometer counter, surveyor's transit, what? Microscope projector, huh? Mirror copier, <laughs> what, the, what the hell are half of these things? Electromagnetic telegraph, diving quote, quote, submarine. I love the quote, quote. Electric quote, quote, guitar. DC electric motor, experimental camera, astronomical telescope, diode radio, under $4 at your favorite toy, gift, and hobby stores. And it's, a, it's about a half a page with this really campy art style and this dude in a red shirt is holding on to this weird you know ale guitar thing or whatever it is and there's no people crowded all around him i made this electric guitar myself wow real strings groovy it sounds great i bet it doesn't play something unreal i'll think i'll make a microscope yeah you have fun with that ale play lab kits puts fun back in make it toys hollis new york one one four two three Ah, the seven. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> no, I never had any of this stuff. Yeah, just a nice classic box of disappointing junk. <laughs> Love to see that. <laughs> Again, if anyone out there ordered this kit and tried to make any of this stuff, feel free to chime in on the Facebook page, uh, e email us, whatever. Let us know how it all turned out for you. As for my my spotlighted ads for this issue, I mean, there's an ad for the Joe Orlando spotlight issue of Amazing World of DC Comics featuring Kane, Abel, and Swamp Thing. But I just had to go with a full-page ad that starts out with the tagline, Men who could fight or disappear. Learn the secret powers of the deadliest killers in the Orient. The physio-mental powers of the ninja. And we've got this half the page is, the top half the page is illustrated with a supposed ninja 
with like a bad uh, with like bad covid mask etiquette because his ninja mask is pulled up over the bottom half of his face and a nostril is sticking out the top and he's apparently in a thought bubble alternately beating the crap out of a couple of guys or disappearing in a puff of smoke kind of i guess it, it sort of looks like the guy jumping away is one of the dudes in the suit and tie but hey you're going to become a ninja. You don't have time to figure this out now. You've got training to do. So I'm not going to read the entire act. It's incredibly verbose and is a joy to read through yourself. And, and we'll have a picture of it in the album. But I, some of my highlights from it are, it starts off with four things saying, now you can learn the same exact thing reworded four times. So using up that space really well. Now you can learn this. Now you can learn that same thing over and over again. It stresses a couple of times how this program will teach you how to kick ass in your sleep. You can beat people up even if you are sleeping when the fight starts. There's a box that tells you that to inform law enforcement or that they have informed law enforcement about this program. They've sent this brochure for free to law enforcement so that they'll understand what kind of deadly secrets this program is unleashing into the public space. Then there's the discussion of ninja weapons. So of course they mentioned the stars of death because no one knew the word shuriken back then. They didn't even say throwing stars, just stars of death. And then there's the retrievable stone. Now, I can't figure out what they're talking about here, and I'll get into that a little bit later. But all I thought of was, like, the the yo-yo of death. Like, it's a retrievable stone. It flies out, smacks somebody, and comes back. Now, the yo-yo was an ancient weapon. thought maybe that would be it. There's other points where I thought the ad was very cleverly filled with typos. Like, it promises you will know the secrets of invisibility. Invis with an A-ability. So, technically, you can't tell them that they lied to you because you don't know what invisibility is. You know, that's it's 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 unknowable. It's a ninja secret. And you'll also know the closely guarded secrets of Atem Waza or no, of Atemi Waza. Now I looked that up because this ad fascinated me. I'm not kidding. Take your time and read through it. It's a gem. It's not one I've seen a million times either. Atemi Waza is apparently striking maneuvers by the hand, fingers, edge of the hand, elbow, knee, foot, and heel, aimed at vital points on your opponent. So it's like nerve strikes. If you're a Batman fan, you've heard that term a million times. I hit him with a nerve strike. And, and you will also, after going through this program, have lightening reflexes. Yes, lightening, as in light, E-N-I-N-G. So again, your reflexes will become lighter. <laughs> So it's, it's, it's a hard thing to say they didn't achieve. As I mentioned, it mentions the retrievable stone weapon, which I did some Googling on. I did some actual research because, you know, this was something pointless. So I got interested in it. And I found one other book that refers to the retrievable stone. It gave a little more detail. The book is called Forbidden Fighting Techniques of the Ninja by Ashida Kim. It has a little parenthetical phrase after retrievable stone and it says flexible slash entangling weapon so now i'm confused is this like a bolo where like you throw the stones connected to a string and it wraps around your i don't know what this is so people you can get out there and figure out what they really mean by the retrievable stone ninja weapon i'll come up with a giveaway or something i'll i'll send you one once you tell me what it is i'll see if someone's still selling one and i will give you 
the powers of the ninja for free. <laughs> right? So there's, I mean, there was also an ad for Count Dante, the deadliest man alive in this issue, but that ad has been covered so thoroughly out there already. There's a whole website that tells you about Count Dante, who was a real person and had an incredibly strange story. You can go find that too. So I wasn't going to be the 100,000th Count Dante guy. So I had to bring you in to the physio-mental domain of the ninja for this episode. So those are our spotlighted ads for this issue. And now, like a ninja, we will disappear from this section and reappear in total silence over in a section we like to call Got any last words? I like this one. And actually like the day after Doomsday story more than a longer tale. How often does that happen? Back from the Dead gets the check mark in the W column this time around. We had a true story, which is always awesome. And I had a hard time selecting my ad this time, too. Man, I was I was really thinking about that ninja ad, man. <laughs> you know, some of these self-defense ones were just incredible. Soldier from Space with a different artist may have picked this one up a little bit further for me, though. All right. As for me, as you just heard a little bit ago, this was a no flat tires at all issue for me. I, I liked everything in it. I especially enjoyed the ads, too. I mean, that that... That kit that you found, too, I looked at that and I couldn't really make heads or tails of it. I was like, how do I even talk about this? And then you picked it and went after it. So that was perfect. Great issue all around. And for me, if I got to pick a winner, I really did like Soldier from Space, but that's not going to be the winner for me just to be a contrarian. I got to go with the warrior breed. A, it was just good in and of itself, before I had even heard about your History Minute stuff. And I really love the art in it, especially the sort of Steve Ditko style that snuck out on that one page. It was just a super charmer for me. I loved it. So that's that's an easy winner for me from this issue. But Soldier from Space, second place, <laughs> in my opinion. So that's it. That's the issue. The issue itself is done. We have done 40 issues of Weird War Tales. Aha! With that little victory behind us, we're going to move on to the Dead Letter Office, which is it's social section of our page where we check our email, get on social media, see what's going on, who's stopping by to say hey. And this time around, we kind of focus on Weird War Tales number 37, featuring the full-length battle tale known as The Three Wars of Don Q. Normally at the top here, I mention the Weird Warriors podcast PX on redbubble.com, where you can buy merchandise with our awesome logo drawn, designed by Bill Walco, and get it on anything you could possibly want. But I'm not going to mention it this time because none of you are buying anything. So who cares? All right. So over on Facebook, some good friends of the show stopped by to say, hey, David Steele of the Earth 2 podcast, Tim DeForest of ComicsRadioBlogspot.com, Matt Spectro of the Multiverse podcast, Herschel Memis, Luke Giaconetti of the Earth Destruction Directive podcast, our good buddy Bill Mooney. In the show account for Magazines and Monsters, which over on Twitter, the owner of that show, Doc Strange, Billy Delicious, stopped by, as did Ed Moore, who you guys can find at, at Teal Productions. That's T-E-A-L Productions. Ed has been on a bunch of shows that I've listened to as a guest, and his account on Twitter is really fun to follow, so check him out, too. So that's the Dead Letter Office, and over on our Gmail account, which is 
I'll let you guess. Too late. It's weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com. Tim DeForest and Jason Zeller stopped by to write in, and I'm going to have, as I haven't discussed it with him yet, but I'm going to let Rich read Tim's email, and I'll read Jason's to you. That's okay. I'm used to him throwing me under the bus. Tim says, I agree that the lazy, muddy art killed the story, but I wonder if this could have been a really good story regardless. It was too undisciplined. Drake was throwing idea after idea into the story willy-nilly. All of them were good ideas, the god Armstrong taken from an old King Kong poster being my favorite. But there was no real structure to it all, with the talisman being used as a douche machina tossed Taylor and Sancho into various largely unconnected situations. Perhaps the best example of how unstructured it was is when Taylor wakes up with Sancho holding a knife over him. Only to have Sancho decide Taylor really was Don Q. Yeah, that was just freaking weird. This seemed like it should have been introducing a plot element that would lead to something later, but it was just forgotten. It was a story filled with ideas that should have actually been used as elements in perhaps three separate stories. I wonder if Drake wrote several stories for the issue and was then told to combine them into one. Thanks for the shout out about my gag cover. You're welcome. I didn't think you guys had forgotten it. Instead, I myself had actually forgotten about it. I love the voice Rich used when reading the word balloon I added. Again, you're welcome. <laughs> Rich never forgets. And he loves an excuse to pull out a silly voice. So <laughs> we're, we're two of a kind that way. And as I said, Jason Zeller, the founder and sole possessor of the Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award, also wrote in about Weird War Tales number 37. The Three Wars of Don Q. And he said that the issue had an okay cover, but unfortunately did not relate to the interior story in any way. And it didn't. The Three Wars of Don Q is probably one of the weirdest and wackiest stories I have ever read. The opening with the coffin had me thinking it was a vampire story, but then quickly shifted gears. The best part for me was how Nick Taylor initially was resistant to the idea of being Don Quixote, but all too soon just went with it. I really enjoyed how they mixed reality with fantasy in the early scenes, kind of like Don Quixote's imagination had taken over. The transition to the far-flung future like Planet of the Apes really threw me for a loop. The story really fit the bill for weird and war in a new and interesting way, but I was definitely ready for it to be over. The ads that really stood out to me were all the ones asking people trying to get technical skills and the underlying common theme of people struggling to find jobs in the 1970s economy. I liked Electroman from the Cleveland Institute of Electronics, which made me think of a Jack Kirby-drawn character. And look at that. I gave Rich an email that mentioned him, and I gave me an email that mentioned me. It's almost like I thought about this, but I didn't. Thanks, Max for mentioning the Gardner Fox biography. It is on my to-read list still, along with the Otto Binder biography. He did so much for Golden and Silver Age comics, especially DC, and helped create or reinvent so many characters we have enjoyed over the years. One thing I didn't know about Gardner Fox until recently was Crom the Barbarian, widely considered the first comic adaptation of the sword and sorcery genre, was a creation of Gardner Fox's. Apparently, there was a website that has it for sale in PDF and also a small graphic novel format. So yeah, I mean, that biography that Jason's mentioning about Gardner Fox is Forgotten All-Star, a biography of Gardner Fox. It is by Jennifer DeRoss. 
and you can go out, order it on Amazon, a few other places. It is a fantastic piece of work, but it does only focus pretty much exclusively on Gardner's work at DC because that's a whole lot to cover already. And as Jason mentioned there, Gardner did stuff outside of DC all around. He, he was constantly writing. So yeah, Crom the Barbarian does, you know, Crom sound a little familiar to Conan fans, you know, like that this kind of stole from each other back then and kept running. So Jason gives us a link to the Gardner Francis Fox Library, where the uh, complete comic book collection of Crom the Barbarian is up on offer. There we go. We had some some really cool fun letters from people in the Gmail inbox. The dead letter office is closed. So the show's kind of over, folks. But don't be sad. Rich is going to give you a little teaser to keep you going and let you know what's coming up in the next episode. Giving a surprise birthday present to my co-host, Max Damage, the individual whose fault this whole project is, with a special mission. I've been promising him a Jonah Hex episode for a while now, and... Yeah, no, he doesn't deserve that yet. However, this is officially episode 50, so I'll do something nice. How about a return to the Big Five? Our fighting force is 153, to be exact. The losers have to destroy the Nazi super cannon Big Max, and their secret weapon is a comic book. But this is a double dose of love for Max, for the writer and penciler of this tome is the one... The only Jack Kirby. Don't even lie to yourself and think you won't be here. I'm sending Max the script as I speak. Did you completely change that from the script I'm looking at? Yes. Oh, okay. Son Surprise. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. This is I'm leaving all this in. Son of a bitch. Like, I'm reading this like. Did Rich switch scripts? Like, because I know you're always like five scripts ahead of me. I'm like, well, did he get bored while I was reading and talking, which I can understand, uh, and like start checking out another script and forget? No, people. He actually just switched that on me. <laughs> I'm reading a completely different teaser than the one he just read to you. So the, the teaser that Max is reading will be the teaser for the one after the losers. So yeah. So I, I, I kind of punked Max, but hey, I think he should be used to that by now. Dear God, the flashbacks are starting. <laughs> uh, I got to say, though, kudos, man. I'll take it. A July episode for for me and a Jack Kirby issue of The Losers. I can't argue with that, even though you're still a bastard. <laughs> okay. oh, so, come on. Oh, Big Max. I mean, the, the elements were all here. The secret weapon is a comic book. I mean, what do you want, man? <laughs> You know, I probably should have seen it coming. But on the <laughs> other hand, I don't pay any attention to anything. <laughs> Not a surprise that I got surprised, all right? So, people, that's the show. You already know what he is because I've called him a couple of names already. <laughs> but both of us are the Weird Warriors. We're the Batlin Bros. This is the Weird Warriors podcast. And we promise to make war. No more. <laughs> oh my god.